For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to look at a passage tonight in the book of Joshua. And this passage that we're going to look at tonight, this comes at a very crucial turning point in the history of God's rescue plan for the human race. You see, when the Bible opens up, it, it shows us a world that is not the way it was supposed to be, a world that's broken, where the human race is cut off from God, where people are dying. We were never supposed to die in the first place. But God is accomplishing a rescue plan to bring us um, into a state where we, we don't have to be conquered by death, and also where we can be back in relationship with him. And so he started this rescue plan by picking a guy named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to give you this sweet land. And that choice of Abraham was more than 600 years before the study we're going to look at tonight. And Abraham, God brought him to the land that he had promised him, but he didn't let him have any of it. He just wandered like a, like a nomad, like a big, long camping trip for his whole life. Never owned any of that land, except one little burial plot. And then he grew Abraham's family, his kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, to about 70 people. And then they left the land. So God says, you're going to have to wait longer to get this land. He took them down to Egypt where they lived for over 400 years. And the latter part of that time in Egypt, they were slaves. They were working on Pharaoh's building projects. And they were waiting for the promise of God. And they were growing into a mighty nation. And God sent a leader named Moses. And he says, now it's finally time through Moses to lead my people out of slavery and into this promised land. And so Moses, we see this great miraculous demonstration and we see God as the God of miracles. The creator God can do miracles and he does occasionally. And he, he leads the Israelites through the Red Sea and he leads them right to the doorstep of the promised land. And the people say, no, we don't want to go in. And God says, okay, let's wait a little longer. And so they wander around in the desert for another 40 years. And they've been waiting more than 600 years now since God called Moses, more than 470 years since they went to Egypt, 40 years almost since their first shot to go into the promised land. And God brings them to the doorstep of the promised land. And he says, now you've waited long enough. Now it's finally time to wait just a little bit longer, <laughs> which God will do sometimes three days longer to be exact. And he's got different reasons. There's times where you just feel like, I've waited so long, and now I've got to wait longer. And um, in this case, you know, I, I think God's doing this because he's got one more thing he wants to accomplish, and we're going to find out tonight what that was. So we're in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. So he sends two guys in to check out this land that God had promised to give them. And he says, Scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. Yeah, they were sitting just east of the promised land, right at the north tip of the Dead Sea, if you know your Israel geography, right across the Jordan River. And they could see the great formidable city of Jericho. And he says, I want you to check things out, especially I want you to focus on the city of Jericho. This is the oldest city in the world and the lowest spot in the world down by the Dead Sea. And the walls of Jericho, formidable, terrifying made the city practically unconquerable. In fact, these walls are so famous that even today we have wrestling moves named after the walls of Jericho. And, and the walls pictured here are still not as terrifying as the walls of Jericho in Joshua's day. 
Uh, this archaeological site is one of the first sites they, they ran to as soon as they had access to the Holy Land. It's been excavated many times. And what archaeologists have found is a description that matches the biblical description. Massive city, these walls, five to six feet wide. So, I mean, the walls are this wide and more than 600 meters of wall. So, I mean, we're talking more than six football fields of wall surrounding the city. The walls at their, their low point, 13 feet tall. At their high points, close to 30 feet tall. And um, what I like about this reconstruction is it shows the double-walled structure of Jericho, including hills that ramp up to the walls, and then walls. So it, the, the hill it was built on made it even taller. And um, the double-walled structure, what they would do is they would put the poor people in between the inner and the outer wall. That was kind of like the low-income area. That was like the wrong side of the tracks, right? And um, it was because when the city would get attacked, that was the first part that would get attacked. And so it wasn't in quite as valuable real estate. Um, also, the farmers in the surrounding countryside, when the city was under assault, they would, they would draw into the city and the population would swell. And um, tonight, though, our story is actually going to take place in between the inner and the outer wall on the wrong side of the, the tracks in a, uh, the, a house that was literally built into the outer wall of the city, had a window in that wall that you could look out of. And so scripture tells us that the two men sent by Joshua, they went out and they went to Jericho and they came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. Well, 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 this is a little awkward. I don't think he told them to go there. <laughs> um, what are they doing in the house of a prostitute? How did the spies end up there? Were they doing the usual thing you do in the house of a prostitute? A little undercover work, perhaps? <laughs> I can never resist that joke. It's the last pun, though, I swear. I don't, I don't think so. I, I, you know, there's no hint of, of sexual immorality in the text. God actually, he had a different view of sex than the surrounding cultures did. Um, he had a very high view of sex and um, it was reserved for marriage. And um, the Bible also does not cover up the, the failings of its heroes, including the sexual failings, uh, the sexual sins of its heroes. So um, probably this was a good place to hide out. We read in the Bible, we see like a scene in the book of Genesis where the prostitutes, they come out of the city to meet the travelers before they even get into the city. You know, it's sort of like the billboards at, you know, outside of Vegas, they're trying to get the business first or like the, the picture of the Big Mac right before the exit with the McDonald's. They're trying to get there ahead of time because they want your business. And that's basically what the prostitutes would do. They would go out and meet people and they would escort them back into the city. And so this would have actually been a pretty nice way for these spies to get into the city undetected. Uh, they would have been disguised just like travelers. They would not have been dressed as Israelites. I think, though, it was not just a place to hide out, but God is sovereign, and he had something in mind. God is doing something here, and it's no accident that these spies ended up in this particular house of this prostitute named Rahab on that night. Which brings up another question, not just how did the spies end up there, but how did Rahab end up there? Where did she come from? We really don't know much about her backstory, but you can sure bet that, um, you know, the life of a prostitute was horrible. You know, nobody, you know, no little girl wanted to grow up 
to this kind of life. You know, in, in ancient times, it was, it was not really jobs for women. There was, um, you know, unless you were married to someone that could provide for you, you were in trouble. There was no social security system. And so you did what you could to keep from starving. And, um, you know, it was a short life expectancy. You know, Rahab might have been the same age or younger than a lot of the women here in this room because prostitutes just didn't live that long. You know, there was, the life was fraught with all kinds of problems, whether it was STDs, whether it was brutal treatment at the, at the hands of, of men in private quarters, um, whether it would be the God knows how many abortions uh, use, using very primitive means because who wants to purchase a pregnant prostitute? You know, this was part of survival. You know, they were doing whatever they could to survive. Um, and, um, you know, and, and just the, the toll it takes on your soul to sleep with guy after guy, sometimes two, three, four men in any given night. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, a depressing life. It's a lonely life. And Rahab um, was probably a sweet little girl at one time, as all girls start out. And then she was you know, probably playing in the streets with her friends and her siblings. And then life just happened. And they had to do whatever they could. And I... I, I can't imagine what that initial transition was like for her, but, um, you know, telling herself this is the way that things are and other people do this and I'm just doing what I can and life has dealt me this hand and I'm sure there were maybe some bad choices she made along the way, like happens with so many of us, and also things that happened to her that were completely out of her control and, you know, each day a little bit worse than the previous one. And then she found herself, I'm sure, doing things she never imagined she would do. Where by day, she's working herself ragged. She actually had a day job in the textile industry. And then at night, she's doing whatever she can to bring in a little bit extra cash just to keep afloat. And, um, you know, I'm sure she knew she was created for something more deep down. She knew this is not what my life was supposed to be. And I don't know if any of us can relate to Rahab in this way where you, you just, you kind of thought your life would turn out a certain way. And then you found yourself making choices and things happen to you. And you, you find yourself doing things you never, ever dreamed that you would do. And you wake up and you just realize, what has my life come to? Maybe some of us are coming in tonight with that very feeling. And Rahab knew she was created for something more, but here she was, a prostitute in a pagan city. She had seen so many things, I'm sure, in the pagan city of Jericho. And then she begins to hear rumors about the Israelites. She heard of this people who um, somehow, it was a great nation of slaves that were set free from Egypt. Their gods showed superiority to the gods of Egypt. And wandering through the desert, the people began to talk about this mighty nation. And then, and then they're thinking, you know, they're headed across the Jordan. There's no way they'll make it through the nations across the Jordan River. And yet they do. They're attacked by different nations. And they defeat these nations in self-defense. And they, they march all the way. And then she can look out her window, I'm sure, and see the camp massive Israelite camp on the other side of the Jordan River. At night, what she would have seen is a giant flaming pillar of fire hovering above the people. How terrifying would that have been? Wondering what, what, it, what, will, what will come of us? And then one night she went out for her shift and she met these two spies and she was not fooled at all by their disguise. She knew these were Israelites and Rahab senses an opportunity here. She sees 
She sees an opportunity, and she's going to seize that opportunity. And so, you know, I'm kind of a visual thinker. So, you know, here you have Jericho, and here you have your two spies. (laughs) You know, wearing their best ninja costumes. And then you've got Rahab just kind of making her way out of the city gate. And they walk up, and she's like, hey, boys, how you doing? And they're like, hey. She's like, you guys looking for a good time? And they're like, yes. We are just two traveling ninjas. And ninjas are always looking for a good time. Yes, let's go back to your place. (laughs) And so she leads these disguised Israelites into the city and down to wherever she was located in the wall of the city. But she's not the only one who knows that they're there. It says, someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. And so the king of Jericho gathers up a posse and sends orders to Rahab. And he sends his soldiers down to her door. Boom, boom, boom. Bring out the men who've come to your house. They've come here to spy out the whole land. So it's official. These guys totally suck at being spies. (laughs) They've literally fooled no one. (laughs) Rahab knows. The city knows. The king knows. The ninja costumes were probably not a good idea. Ninjas were not very common in Jericho at this stage in world history. But here's where the story takes an interesting twist. The guys are sitting there thinking, surely this loose woman will turn us in. But she hid them. She hid them, the guys. She had took them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out as part of her occupation in the textile industry. And so this, this Rahab has got a little more savvy than they gave her credit for. You know, the bundles of flax... Um, what they would do is they'd, have to, they'd, they'd harvest these bundles, maybe three feet long, pretty thin, little reed-like crops, and then they would, um, they'd have to take them up to the roof and let them, they'd soak them, and then they'd let them dry out for a couple of weeks until they split open into these fine little fibers, and they could use those to weave garments. They would dye them. Um, she would have had dyeing supplies to dye these things uh, red, among other colors. And um, so the spies, the roof is not made out of flax. The roof was kind of like the hangout place in a lot of ancient, um, <clears throat> kind of like a living room in ancient houses. But the guys are up here and they're hiding out under the flax. <laughs> and they hear the troops downstairs and they're thinking, please, God, don't let them look under the flax. Please, God, don't let her turn us in. And they hear this whole conversation. And she says, Yeah. The men were here earlier, but I I didn't know where they were from. They left town at dusk as the gates are about to close. She's like, I mean, you guys know a lot of my customers are not here for that long. Um, And uh, they left town. I would have said something if I would have known. She says, I I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. And so once the gates closed, you couldn't get in or out. And so these soldiers have a decision to make. Are they going to search the premises or are they going to uh, race to the city gate before it closes so they can get out and they can search for these Israelites before they've lost them altogether. And it tells us the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. So they zip out of the city and down toward the River Jordan, which leaves Rahab and these spies 
It says, as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. And so there's no in or out for the rest of the night. They're at the mercy of this woman, who again, has is, is got a little more savvy than they gave her credit for. And, and what, what Joshua gives us is he gives us um, a summary of their conversation. The camera moves up to the roof of Rahab's house under the night... And it says Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them before they went to sleep that night. And so here we are under cover of night, the full moon over the mountains of Jericho. Let's see what Rahab says. First word out of her mouth, I know Yahweh has given you this land, she told them. We're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. And so we find they've not just fallen in with some random lowlife. This Rahab is a woman of faith. She has great faith. In fact, I think we can learn a thing or two about biblical faith from studying Rahab's faith here. Well, let's see, let's see if we can learn a few lessons. Some of us, we feel like our faith is weak. We don't even, some of us might have a wrong idea of what biblical faith even is. Let's see what we can learn about faith as we read through the story of Rahab. She's a woman of faith. And once... One thing we learn here, first of all, is that biblical faith starts with knowing. We see her knowledge about God and what God has done is an important component of Rahab's faith. And this is interesting because if you look up a dictionary definition of faith, you'll see something like this. Faith is a strong or unshakable belief in something, especially without proof or evidence. So faith set over against something that has proof or even any evidence. If you have those, it's not faith. It's a conviction of the truth of certain doctrines of religion, especially when it's not based on reason. So faith is at its best when there's no proof, no evidence, and it's irrational. That is faith. And I think in a lot of religious definitions, that is an accurate definition. But when it comes to biblical faith, we find exactly the opposite when we look at the life of Rahab and when we study other passages as well, biblical faith starts with knowing. If you want your faith to grow, it starts with what you know. And you know that's got to be true because it rhymes. <laughs> look, it, maybe it's time for you to start feeding your mind with God's truth. You know, as a younger Christian, I would have these doubts. I sensed my faith was weak. And I was afraid to look into my questions. I would more just try to block these thoughts out of my mind and not think about them and think about something else. And I thought that was really having faith. And that was not faith. It just made me, it made me doubt more. And I was trying to overcome with willpower. I, you don't need to do that with biblical faith. There are good answers. There are great answers. But you need to find, feed your mind with God's truth and the truth will set you free. This is what gives you the firm foundation. God has answers for the world the way it is that, as, as I've read, no other worldview comes even close to explaining the world the way the biblical worldview does. There are great answers to your doubts. And so um, if, if your faith is a little weak, maybe this is the place you need to start. Maybe you need to get more serious about what Jesus called loving the Lord with all your mind. Christians should be thinkers. And, you know, that means uh, a steady diet of God's word getting a habit going where each day I'm reading the word of God, where you'll get to the point where it feels weird if you go a day without reading a chapter or more of God's word. And 
We've also got great books here. Um, you, there's all kinds of great books giving you reasons to believe in God, um, giving, uh, uh, answering common objections. We've got a free book tonight, if it's your first time here, that answers some of the common objections and puts forth some really simple but powerful arguments for why believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible. So biblical faith, if we're trying to troubleshoot our faith, this might be one place to start. We just aren't feeding it with enough truth. Rahab's faith started with what she knew, with the things she had learned about God was the basis for this radical faith. And, you know, what's cool about Rahab is, you know, her faith, you know, she lives in a culture where pretty much nobody believes this. And postmodernism says you can't break outside of your cultural context and you can't even know anything for sure. And, And Rahab is doing that here. She's saying, I know Yahweh has given you this land. We've heard how Yahweh made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. That's the first event after they left Egypt. She's like, I heard. You know, there was a lot of travelers. Word gets around in ancient times. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og, those two kings across the Jordan River whose people you completely destroyed. That was the last thing that had happened to them after leaving Egypt. So this is the bookends of the 40 years, and she'd probably heard a lot of the things that happened in between. She says, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For Yahweh, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Again, a radical statement where they believe that, you know, each region had its own gods and there was no supreme God. And yet this is a statement of monotheism of the highest proportions. And so we see a second component to Rahab's faith. It's not just that she knew some things. But she also believed. She placed her trust. Faith, trust, belief are all basically synonyms for the same thing when it comes to the biblical view of faith. Knowing plus believing. I mean, all of Jericho knew some of these things about Yahweh, but she was the only one, as far as we can tell, that was placing her trust, that was believing. The rest of them were gearing up to to battle, to fight back. They weren't going to take this lying down. But no, she says... I believe Yahweh, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. And what I love about Rahab is that everything she's ever been taught about God, about life, about sexuality, about the world, was wrong, wrong, wrong. And she had been brought up this way. She had learned so many wrong things. And it's not only that, she had acted on those lies and done so much damage to herself, to other people. And sometimes we've done things and we just think the damage I've done to myself, it's got to be irreversible. The damage to my perspective, the damage to my body, the damage to my soul. How can I ever come back from what I've done? And it feels kind of hopeless. And it's enough to make some of us feel like giving up. But then she began to hear stories about this Yahweh. You know, the the prostitute was sort of like the bartender where people, they want to talk. And so she would have had private conversations with so many men that were traveling all around that area. She'd heard stories, I'm sure, from, from this customer about how he remembers as a boy his father's business being wiped out in Egypt by this powerful God and the, the, the miracles that he had performed. And, you know, she starts asking about these Israelites, and she's like, so they're led by this guy named Moses. He must be a very, a very holy man. And they're like, no, actually, he's not. He killed a guy. 
He was, a, he was a, a dropout from Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's court. When, when God went and got him, he was 79, and he was watching his father-in-law's flocks out in the middle of nowhere. And she's like, so God is a God who can work through a murderer? Maybe God can work through me. Maybe God can accept me. I've done some bad things too. These Israelites, she's thinking, and maybe even asking, like, they must be very holy people. And they're like, no, actually not at all. They were slaves. They're very fickle. And she's thinking, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to sin. I'm the lowest of the low. If he can accept them, maybe he can accept me. She finds out he picked them, not because they were so awesome, but just because he promised he would. And he's a God of love. He's a God who keeps his promises. And she begins to wonder if this Yahweh can accept me, if I can be one of, the, one of his people too. And we live in a culture where people are being taught all of the wrong things. And they're acting on those. And they're doing incredible damage to themselves and to other people. And sometimes it seems sort of hopeless. But God is the God of Rahab. And God is scanning the world. And he's got people picked out. And he wants to bring them the message of his grace, his truth. Rahab stands as a ray of hope that no one is too far gone. You know, all these things that, that, that Rahab was asking for, this, this could have been had by anyone in Jericho. This can be had by anyone here tonight. No matter what you've done, no matter even if you've gone as far as Rahab, if you've been involved in prostitution as a customer or as a purveyor of goods, if you, no matter what you've done, Rahab stands as a ray of hope, and it stands against all of our religious notions that, that God only accepts good people. And the answer is there are no good people. We all, we all stand in the same place as Rahab in need of God's grace. She says, I know Yahweh is the supreme God. I believe this. But she doesn't stop there. She doesn't stop at the might and the power of God. She takes it a step further. She says, now swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to me and my family since I've helped you. Give me a pledge of truth that when Jericho is conquered, you'll let me live along with my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all of their families. And so what she points out here is a term that we talked about the last couple of weeks in Psalms, God's hesed, his loving kindness his mercy. And she says, I believe not just that he's a God who's powerful, but I'm wondering, can he love someone like me? Can he love someone like me? It's not enough just to believe in God and be afraid of him. A lot of people show up at churches every week and they, they're just afraid of God and they're cowering in fear and they're saying, I'm sorry so many times and I'll try to do better and trying to make up for it. And that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is trusting in, the, in the, the love of God. We must believe that God is God and that he's good to those who seek him. You need to come with the empty hands of faith. That's what we need to do. Come with our hands empty and receive the love of God. That's what Rahab is doing here. You know, um, Scripture is pretty explicit on this. Sometimes it's hard for us to get out of the religious mindset. And so sometimes it uses pretty raw language to describe just how, how far short we fall of, 
somehow meeting God's glorious standard. I'm going to read for you the grossest verse in the Bible, okay? Isaiah 64, 6. God is talking to a very religious people that's doing all these good works to earn his acceptance. And he says, Isaiah says, no, we're all like one who is unclean. Then he says this, he says, all our so-called righteous acts are like a menstrual rag in your sight, Lord. Ew. (laughs) He says, when we come to you with our rituals and our good deeds and our I'll try even harder, God says, it's like coming to him with a used menstrual rag. That's the language God is using. It's we come to God and we're like, God, I did all these rituals. And God's like, ew. (laughs) I said all these prayers to make up for what I did. And he's like, ew. No. That is not how we approach God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says seven different ways that we approach God through grace. You want to count them together? For it is by grace that you've been saved. All right, two. Through faith, three. And this is not from yourself, four. It's the gift of God, five. Thank you. Not by work, six, so that no one can boast. All right. Seven, the number of completion. <laughs> what a biblical number. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I can't even think of any other ways to say it. And he put them all in one sentence. Grace, grace, grace. And Rahab, what Rahab is, is she's a, a case study in grace. We have it laid out in verses like this, but we also have it laid out in people. Like Rahab and like those of us who are here in this room. Well, we offer our own lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we'll keep our promise and we'll be kind to you when Yahweh gives us the land. And so we see here a third and final component of biblical faith that we can learn from Rahab. She knew some things about God and she believed those things. She trusted in him. And third, she acted on it. The action component in faith. Rahab is a great example of faith in action. You know, we see her um, hiding the spies. They say, don't betray us. There's several action steps that she takes. And, you know, imagine what would we think about Rahab's faith if she says everything she just said and then turned the spies into the authorities. That would leave what she had said feeling pretty hollow, wouldn't it? No, biblical faith expresses itself in action. And, you know, um, maybe, maybe this is the thing missing from your faith. If you want to grow your faith, maybe you're too stuck inside your head and you're not acting enough on it. God will give you action steps. Maybe he's given you an action step already. Maybe something's coming to mind, that a, a step of faith God wants you to take. And it's taking that step that you see the knowledge and the beliefs confirmed in action And there's a positive cycle that happens here where then it becomes, you gain more knowledge, personal knowledge, personal experience. Your belief is strengthened because you've trusted him and stepped out. And it gives you uh, even stronger faith to take action in the future. And so there's this, this great feedback loop that happens with biblical faith. So that might be the thing you need to take away from this is, is the action step is missing. You're just not acting enough on it. Well... Since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let him down by a rope through the window. So we see this rope 
dangling down to the ground, and by cover of night, the spies letting themselves down through the rope. And yet there's one, uh, she says, escape to the hill country, hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when you've returned, you can go on your way. You get the sense maybe Rahab's done this before. <laughs> go over there, they'll come back, and then you can go, and you'll be fine. <laughs> Good thing I have this rope. <laughs> But before the men left, they had told her, we'll be bound by, there's one particular action step that's very specific here. We'll be bound by this oath is only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. It's a different word for rope. It's a different thing they're talking about here. Scarlet rope. In the textile industry, they needed a way to dye their garments. And so what they would do is they'd go out into the the, the that area has, has some pretty red rocks, and so they would, they would boil water, they would drop all these red rocks in the water, and then they would drop these ropes in the water. And they would boil the water all the way down until all the water boiled off and the red powdery substance would get absorbed into the ropes. And then they could transport it easily, and then when they wanted to dye their garments, they again cut a piece of rope off, throw it in, boil the water, throw the garments in, and the red becomes part of the garment. And so she had some of this lying around her, her place there. And they said, see this red thing here? I want you to hang this on the window. And all your family members, Rahab, you asked about your family. Her family coming under the grace of God was also very important to her. That's her first instinct. All your father, mother, brothers, all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out in the street and are killed, it won't be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside the house, we'll accept responsibility for their death. If you betray us, we're not bound by this oath in any way. So why the scarlet rope? Why are they going through this? When we come into the land, hang the scarlet rope from your window. What's one of the first things the Israelites did when they came into the land? Joshua 5.10. While the Israelites were camped on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover. What's Passover? Passover looked back 40 years to an event that happened the night they left Egypt. God said to the Israelites, you've been living in this pagan land for long enough. Tonight, judgment is coming upon this land. And you need to take a perfect lamb, you need to slaughter it, you need to smear the red on your doorposts and on your door, lintel. And everyone who's inside the house will escape from the judgment that's coming on the land. And this will be your last night here. Tomorrow, I set you free. You will no longer be here anymore. You will be the new reborn people of God. And what they're saying to Rahab is, that will be your last night in the land, Rahab. You've been living in this pagan land as a slave for far too long. You need the red thing on your, on your house and everyone in that house will be counted part of the people of God. And you'll never have to go back to a place like this again. That is the new beginning of your new life. They were saying, Rahab, you, you become part of the people of God the same way that we did. We, by the blood of the lamb, you, by the red of the rope. It all points forward to Jesus Christ, whose blood, he says, Christ is our Passover lamb, and it's his blood that cleanses us. 
It's all pictures of Jesus Christ and God's ultimate rescue plan. I accept your terms, she replied, which is when God offers you salvation, that's what you say. It's really terms of surrender is what God is offering. He's trying to give you a gift. And she says, I accept your terms. And she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. And so the spies, they take off. She puts the rope in there. They head out. And it leaves us wondering, whatever happened to Rahab? Well, the first thing that happened to Rahab was she waited. She's there in her house. There's several more days before the spies are even going to go back to Joshua and they're going to come into the land. And she's waiting. And I wonder what she was thinking as she was waiting. Was she thinking, that was really stupid. I had an opportunity to make a buck. I could have done something for my advantage here and I let him get away. Was that what she was thinking? Was she having doubts? Uh, was she wondering if anyone saw her and is there, this, will the soldiers be back to haul her off? to execution as a traitor to the state. It might have been a tense couple of days for Rahab. And then here, she's waiting, and then she's watching, and she's looking out her window, and she sees the Israelites begin to move. She sees the Jordan River part, and the Israelites walk through on dry ground. She sees them begin marching around Jericho once a day for seven days, and then, and then uh, six or seven times on the last day. And here she is. The rope is hanging there. She's thinking, do they see it? Are they going to keep their promises? And really, she's got to be wondering, are they, even if they let me live, is my life really going to be any better with the Israelites? Am I just going to be a sex slave for the Israelites? Am I just going to be a nobody? Um, what can I really expect from these people? I don't know anything about them. And so she watched. And then we find that Rahab was rescued. And what's interesting is Scripture tells us that all the walls in Jericho fell down as part of this supernatural earthquake. It's right on a, like the biggest fault line in the world, that part of the world. And um, she was rescued. And all the walls fell down except, obviously, not one part of the wall, Right? If Rahab's house was built into the wall and the rope was hanging in the window, then what must have happened is a great, terrible rumble and the walls falling down and dust everywhere. And when the dust cleared, what they would have seen is all the mighty walls of Jericho lying on the ground, except for one place, a 13 to 27 foot tall section of wall with the red rope blowing in the wind like a flag of grace. And that's how they knew where, Jer where Rahab was. That was the safe house. And she was rescued. And she wasn't just rescued and made to be a prostitute for the Israelites because God didn't allow that sort of thing. He has a much higher view of sex. No, she actually got married. A guy named Salmon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, don't judge him by his name, okay? Because, um, you know, she's probably thinking, what guy's going to want me? You know, she, she's like, I don't even know if I can have kids. And I've... I'm a used woman, and yet some guy did want her because he wasn't looking at her in her old life. He was looking at her in her new life, and that's how we view each other. We don't, view, we don't evaluate one another according to the flesh anymore. We've, we view one another through Christ, and not only that, 
She became royalty. We find that Salmon was not just any old guy. His dad was the leader of the tribe of Judah, the greatest tribe, the biggest tribe. And so what she effectively married was a prince of the tribe of Judah. She goes from prostitute to wife to princess Rahab. A great position of honor among the Israelites. And it doesn't end there. We find her singled out in the New Testament, multiple places as a woman who's a great example we should look to if we want to learn what faith looks like. She's the only non-Israelite in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. They were singing her praises 1,500 years after she died in the New Testament, and we're, we're talking about Rahab today, 2,000 years after that, aren't we? And not only that, but Rahab, it turns out, was able to have kids after all. She became a mother. And she had a son who had a son who had a son who had a son named Boaz. And Boaz, I'm sure, heard a lot of stories about great-grandma Rahab. I'm sure he learned about God's grace through this childless Canaanite prostitute. And so it shouldn't be too surprising when Boaz ends up marrying a childless Moabite widow. Because I wonder if he saw something in her that reminded him of Grandma Rahab. And then fast forward another couple of generations, Boaz has a great-great-grandson named David, King David, the guy whose songs we've been reading about. And I wonder, you know, a lot of his songs that he wrote, his perspective on God's grace, part of that would have been informed by what he knew about his great-grandma Rahab. And then if you fast forward another thousand years, we open our Bibles to the first book of the New Testament, the first paragraph of Matthew, and we see a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in that genealogy, we read that one of the ancestors of the greatest man, the God-man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, was Rahab. And this is so radical that some people are, frankly, offended by this. Religious people that think they, don't, they, they must not understand grace, they're offended that God would put a prostitute in the line of his son, Adam Clark, Old Testament scholar, writes, is it probable that a prince of Judah would have taken to wife such a person as our text represents Rahab to be? And to all this may be added that as our blessed Lord came through the line of this woman, it cannot be a matter of little consequence to know what moral character she sustained. He says, no, she wasn't a prostitute. She was an innkeeper. And he does this word study to try to, try to wrestle that word over to mean innkeeper. As an innkeeper, she might be respectable, if not honorable. As a public prostitute, she could be neither. And it's not very likely that the providence of God would have suffered a person of such notoriously bad character to enter the sacred line of his genealogy. Man, this guy just doesn't get it, does he? He's missing the point of Rahab. Um, I went ahead and did my own word study. The Hebrew word is zonah. You can look at any, any lexicon like Strong's Complete Dictionary of Bible Words. And um, here is the way this word is translated every place in the Old Testament. And I went ahead and picked the King James Version because it's more fun. <laughs> zonah. How is this translated? To be a harlot or play the harlot 36 times. Commit fornication three times. 
cause to be a whore or play the whore 11 times, commit whoredom <laughs> or fall to whoredom 15 times, cause to go a whoring 19 times, and last but not least, whorish a whopping three times. Maybe the New Testament lets us off the hook. What word does the Greek New Testament use when it describes Rahab the harlot? The word for harlot is porne. And I don't think you need to be a Greek scholar to know that's not an innkeeper. <laughs> porne? <laughs> no, no. Now I agree with Francis Schaeffer. He says, is Rahab any worse than we are? If it's not fitting that she should be the ancestress of Christ, is it fitting that we should be the bride of Christ? We all stand in Rahab's place in the sight of the Holy God. Yeah, God is not ashamed of what you were before you came to Christ. It doesn't bring God shame. It brings him glory. Because he takes the weak and the small things of this world and he sets them in a place of honor. And he gives them what they don't deserve. Yeah, it doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is what Christ has done. And that's what I want you to come away with tonight. Yes, Lord, uh, really grateful that um, you've revealed yourself to us, Lord, and that you are trying to set straight our notions of salvation by works and all the things that come along with religion, Lord. You want a relationship. You want trust. Um, and you're not looking for perfect people because there are none, but you're looking for people that are willing to receive your mercy, your love, Lord. And um, God, I, I, I thank you for how clearly Rahab shows that to us, Father. I pray for anyone who's never um, come under the blood of Christ, that they would do so, Lord, that they would receive your forgiveness for everything that they've ever done, and that they would remember that nothing is, no one's too far gone, nothing is too bad for you to forgive. Um, and I pray, Lord, that we would um, learn to believe and, and um, act, Lord, and um, grow in our faith as well, Lord. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.